Beloved, I remember when my family moved to California for me to go to seminary. Uh, we received a gift of a little angel. It was a little plump, little cherub-like angel that our neighbor said you can uh, put on your front doorstep and can watch over you and maybe point it in my direction. It'll watch uh, over me. Uh, that was when we first moved there. She wasn't uh, saved at that point. By God's grace and mercy, working through my beloved Margie, God actually did save her. Last I heard was that she had uh, moved to Pasadena and was going to a church that was pastored by a brother, TMS alumni of mine. As I was thinking about that, I looked up the definition of the word cherubic uh, this week. I used to say I looked up in Webster. I look, look it up now in dictionary.com. And according to dictionary.com, cherubic means adorable, childlike, cute, innocent, sweet, and gives the illustration as a rosy-cheeked child with wings having a plump, pretty innocence, end quote. Now, beloved, if we read Scripture and we look at God's account of the cherubim, of the rank of angels, we would know that that is very far off. That definition has nothing whatsoever to do with the appearance of the cherubim in Scripture. For example, the cherub that God placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life with a flaming sword. There is much confusion around angels. Maybe you've heard the sentiment at a funeral, very often at the sad funeral of a child, where someone might say, well, he or she is now an angel in heaven. And certainly we love God's mercy and grace, but we know that human beings don't become angels. Many Christian books haven't particularly helped in the matter as well. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. What we have is the author of Hebrews in this incredible sermonic epistle letter from chapter 1, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 2, verse 18, the pastor, preacher, author spends an inordinate amount of time on angels for a specific reason. There was much confusion, and even before the author got to the main topic of making sure that this dear group of Hellenistic Jewish believers don't get pulled back into their old way of man-centered salvation, even before the author addressed that, he dealt with significantly this issue of angels, and the angels are on the front burner of the letter. Beloved, follow along as I read our text this morning, our verses 7 through 14. Listen to the word of God that we have before us here. Hebrews 1 and verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the throne, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle you will roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? 
Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, by way of an outline this morning, it's pretty simple and straightforward. We're going to have two words. We're going to have a word on the sun and a word on angels. The word on the sun will take up most of our time. It's verses 7 through 13, and then we will wrap up at the end with the word on angels. And even as I opened up here, the author says so much about angels, but the point The thrust, his intent, is not angels, it is the Son. Beloved, that the Son, the second member of the Trinity, Christ, Messiah, the King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, will be lifted higher in your mind and estimation when you and I see his infinite superiority over the mighty ones, his mighty ones, the angels. Beloved, the first we look at here, the first word is a word on the sun. Actually, it's five words, actually. There's much rich, deep material here. We'll skim over the surface on these five words regarding the sun. And all five of these words spell another word. They spell the deity of the sun, his godhood. He is God himself. First, we have the fourth out of seven Old Testament quotations. From verse 5 to 14, the author brings out seven quotations. We already saw three of them in verses 5 and 6. Now in verse 7 and 8, we have this fourth quote coming out from the Old Testament, from the Bible they had at that point, concerning the Son's superiority over the angels. Now, we know clearly that nowhere in Scripture does God ever encourage or call people to worship angels. But, on the other hand, in verse 6, we saw that God does call the angels to bow their knee in worship to a person, to the Son. And we can ask the question, who are these mighty ones that he brought up in verse 4 and commanded to bend the knee to the Son? Who are these mighty angels? Well, the author, pastor, preacher answers that for us in verse 7. Sorry, I got a little, uh, <laughs> got a little logistic. That's never happened before. I'm going to take a moment just so I don't have to do this again. All right. Well, that's good. That's why we have uh, editing wizards back there. <laughs> okay. Verse 7. Uh, and of the angels, he says. And of the angels, he says. Now, what he's doing here is, back in verse 6, he also used that present tense, says. What's fascinating about the author of Hebrews is unlike even Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ would quote Scripture, he would use a tense that would basically say Scripture was written and completed in the past, and it stands written today. That's the way the Apostle Paul would normally do it. But the author of Hebrews thrusts us forward and basically brings out the fact that the word of God is dynamic, active, living. It is binding. He uses the present tense because God speaks today right here, right now to us. He says, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is the fourth quote from Psalm 104 verse 4. 
which I read in the public reading of Scripture, and Gary brought out even as we were going through the corporate praise and worship. Psalm 104 is a creation psalm, an extolling and a praising and a thanking God around his creation. And he talks about his angels' winds and his ministers, angels as well, a flame of fire. And beloved, wind and flame are very powerful forces of God's creation. In the promised land, in the land of Israel that God had promised to the nation of Israel, winds range from a refreshing breeze off of the Mediterranean Sea, which would make the largely arid land a pleasant climate even to live. And it would go from that end of the spectrum all the way to harsh, fierce winds from Arabia that would burn and wither everything in their path. Uh, The fire, fire, obviously, a little flame can burn an entire forest, James tells us. Even when we think of angels, when he talks about them being a flame of fire, I mentioned the cherubim before. There's another classification of angels called seraphim. Cherubim literally means the serving ones. Seraphim are the burning ones. Or we can think of the mighty angel that came down as a messenger and announced the resurrection and rolled the stone away from the entrance to the tomb. And Matthew in his gospel records for us, chapter 28, verse 3, that his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. And even the flame of fire that the author of Hebrews, that could even be referring to lightning as well. And beloved, we understand that both wind and fire can be powerfully destructive or, if properly harnessed, can be powerfully constructive. Uh, Another way in which wind can even be very destructive and dangerous in the promised land is strong winds would come down off the eastern mountains and sweep down onto the Sea of Galilee and could take a relatively calm, big lake, Sea of Galilee, and turn it into a raging storm which, of course, we see in the life and ministry of Jesus when the tremendous storm rose up and all the fierce, rugged fishermen were fearful of the storm. And then Jesus demonstrated his authority over creation by instantaneously stilling and ceasing not just the wind, but even the waves themselves. But here in Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, the key point is angels are made. They are created. The sun is uncreated. There is a tremendous contrast. And as we go from verse 7 to verse 8, from the fifth Old Testament quote to the, excuse me, from the fourth to the fifth Old Testament quote, there's a huge contrast. The author is saying, on the one hand, there are the mighty angels, the winds and the flaming fire. On the other hand, verse 8, but... Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. And beloved, the huge contrast that he is bringing out here is between the creation and the creator, between the creature and the creator. All things, beloved, created, even the angels, are subject to time and tide and change. But... The creator is not. That's why your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
And even just in this one verse brings out all these different dimensions, all these different aspects of the son that spell out his deity. Your throne, that's his authority. That's the point we're on here. God says to the son, God the father says to God the son, oh God, that's his deity. Forever and ever, that's his eternality. Your righteous scepter, that's his integrity. Beloved, the son is the sovereign ruler and the ultimate judge. This is the authority of the reigning king of the sovereign ruler. Now, even as we would segue from this authority to the next word, which is, in, is uh, integrity. When you think of a righteous scepter, what king could truly boast of having a righteous scepter, of a truly always righteous scepter? You could think of the Old Testament kings of Israel. And the Old Testament kings, the lineage and the lineup of the Old Testament kings of Israel reads like a rogue gallery. There's, there's intrigue, there's assassination. It makes me think of the, the uh, list of popes in the Middle Ages, of nepotism and intrigue and assassinations and so forth. You can think of a line of presidents, and it can go from bad to worse, and enough said on that. But, beloved, the whole point here is it is a tremendous reminder to us that we are all guilty. We are lawbreakers. If there is acceptance with God, it must come some other route. And beloved, as we gaze into the mirror of the law, as we gaze into the reflecting surface of the word of God, we see that we can't uphold the law. The law confronts us in our guilt. And by God's grace and mercy, sends us to the cross for grace. And because we can't uphold the law, he, the son, didn't break the law. He upheld the law every nanosecond of his life. He was tempted just as we're tempted, yet without sin. In his humanity, the man Jesus loved the Lord his God with every ounce of his being, with all his soul, might, strength, and person. Well, that is the authority. And that takes us to the second word spelling deity, namely integrity. And this is a continuation of Psalm 45. Psalm 45 in verses 8, that's quoted in verses 8 and 9, is a wedding psalm. So Psalm 104 is a creation psalm. Psalm 45 is a wedding psalm describing the holy love and holy hate of the Son. In verse 9, you see, the author says, God says to the son, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And it's interesting, he's using past tense here. Now, we know the son in eternity past. We know the son in his present state of ascension and exaltation, of course, loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. But the way the author uses, refers to it in the past, he's talking about the earthly obedience of the man Jesus. And similar to his exaltation that the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 2, which was because he was obedient to the point even of death, so also here the author of Hebrews is bringing out the perfect sacrifice offered by the Son of his perfectly holy, righteous, sinless life that was offered on behalf of all who would believe. And beloved, even as we would think of this, uh, the author will pick it up again. Turn over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. 
as the author will eventually go from this focus on angels to more to the main point of the once for all perfect superior sacrifice and priesthood and covenant of the son look at what he writes in hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 through 9 in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Beloved, that is the loving of righteousness and hating of lawlessness that characterized the son. And as it applies to us, when we love righteousness, we will, by definition, hate lawlessness you cannot have one without the other that's why christ himself said in the sermon on the mount recorded by matthew 6 verse 33 he said christ said but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you so we know that in christ we are saved because christ's perfect righteousness which is what the author of Hebrews talks about, is credited to our account. God looks at us, not by virtue of our sinful life, but by virtue of the sinless life of Christ, of the perfect righteousness. And that righteousness which comes from outside of us, from Christ, does engender in us. It begets, it births a righteousness of our own in our behavior, not a perfect righteousness, but a heart and a desire towards it. It is a both and. It is a both and. And the author continues here in Hebrews 1 verse 9, therefore God, your God has anointed you, has anointed you. Even the title Christ, Messiah, means the anointed one. But what he continues here is he says he has anointed you, the God that God says to the Son, God has anointed the Son with the oil of gladness above your companions. The oil of gladness. Psalm 45, as I said, it's a wedding psalm. It was written for the marriage of the king of Israel. So it's describing a time of festivity and joy. And what the author is talking about here, it's a clear reference to the ascension and exaltation of Christ. And beloved, understand this. Joy is the serious business of heaven. The gladness of God is our mission. And even when he says, here's another contrast. So the main contrast all the way from 1.4 to 2.18 is with angels. But the contrast here, your companions here in this verse, he's not talking about the angels. He's talking about you and me. We are his companions. For example, in chapter 2, Uh, Verse 11 in chapter 2, verse 18, he talks about many sons. He talks about brothers, and that is who he's talking about here. So we are his companions, but he is so far above us. But we also are blessed with and we enjoy this oil of gladness that God the Father anoints the Son. It flows from him to us. In Nehemiah 8, verse 10, The prophet said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Zephaniah 3, verse 17, the Lord your God, Yahweh, your Elohim, is in your midst. He's a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. 
He'll be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. The creator, God of the universe, will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And watch this. Even in the context of the oil of gladness, you can either turn to Isaiah 61 or listen as I read the first three verses. And they may be very familiar to you. They may be new to some. But in Isaiah 61, verse 1, we read these words. The Spirit, and by the way, 61, verse 1 to the middle of verse 2 was what Jesus taught on and he preached and he read in his sermon and his teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth when he began his public ministry. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Watch this. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, so that he may be glorified. Beloved, the anointing of the oil of gladness of God the Father the Son flows down to your anointing and my anointing as well. And beloved, we remember that the joy we experience is not joy created inside of us. It's a joy that comes to us from the infinite reservoir of the joy of Almighty God. In one practical note, uh, we understand that that is a supernatural abiding joy that comes from God. Practically speaking, we can lose that joy, can't we? It can get squelched. And if you want to know the quickest way to lose your joy... If you stop loving righteousness, you will start loving lawlessness. If you or I stop hating lawlessness with a righteous hatred, we will start hating righteousness, and that will rob the joy even of an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God. Authority, integrity, third word that spells deity is eternality. In verses 10 and 11, the sixth Old Testament quote in verses 10 and 12 is from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. This is the eternal in contrast to the temporal. What the author does is he kind of pivots a little bit. The great contrast here isn't primarily with angels. It's with his creation, with the earth and the heavens. Verse 10, he says, And you, Lord in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. So the contrast here is with the creator and the creation. And just briefly, though, I do want to kind of have a thought around angels. One of the portions of scripture I read before was in Job 38. And in Job 38, we see an amazing statement that the angels themselves at God's creation, when God laid the foundation of the earth, they were worshiping spectators. In Job 38, let's do Job 38 instead of Psalm 38. That will read a bit better. Job 38, uh, starting five. Who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on God's creation on the earth? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Watch this verse 7. 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The sons of God, the Benihah Elohim, the morning stars, those are titles of angels. So when God, creator God, the sun, laid the foundation of the earth, the angels shouted for joy. They sang in worship to the most high God. But back here in Hebrews 1, we read in verse 11, here's where the contrast comes in. He says, they will perish, but you remain. The they in verse 11, again, it's not the angels. It's the earth and the heavens in verse 10. The point is, as mighty, as awesome, as significant the earth and the heavens themselves are, they are perishable. They are temporary. They are passing away. And, of course, those that would mock and scoff even at the word of God do mock this. Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3, 4, talks about the mockers who come and ask the question, the skeptical, scoffing question, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They were the beginning uniformitarian evolutionists. Uh, but we know the Apostle John, for example, Revelation verse 20, that when God is pouring out his final judgment, John records that in his vision he saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whom, watch this, from whom presence, earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Again, the great contrast. Also, beloved, note this. In verse 8, God the Father addresses God the Son as, O oh God. In verse 10, God the Father addresses God the Son as Lord. The deity of Christ just bleeds from all of Hebrews chapter 1. And by the way, chap Hebrews chapter 1 is a magnificent portion of Scripture for evangelism. For example, if you find yourself with a Muslim, and a Muslim believes that Jesus was a prophet, but merely a prophet, well, take him or her to the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1, and you see that is not even a remote possibility. He is far above all the prophets, or any cult that would deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Bring them to Hebrews chapter 1. And I like a quote, even as we think of the Son and the Father and the sublime wonder of the triune Godhead, of one God, three persons in the Godhead. I like a quote I came across this week. If you try to define the Trinity, you'll probably lose your mind. But if you deny the Trinity, you will certainly lose your soul. Authority, integrity, eternality. Uh, the fourth word, beloved, is immutability. That's a big theological word that describes the unchangeableness of God, that God is unchangeable in his essence, attributes, his consciousness, his goodness, and his will. And his goodness knows no change. It's unending, unceasing, unchanging. That's why the prophet Malachi, Malachi 3, verse 6, you read the words, I, the Lord, do not change. And the rest of the verse says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. It even ties in the blessing upon the chosen seed of, or the chosen nation of Israel as the apple of his eye. Or James, the old camel knees, half-brother of Jesus Christ. James 1, verse 17, James tells us, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father in lights, 
Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. But beloved, here in Hebrews chapter 1, the author is drawing a tremendous contrast between the immutability and imperishability of the Son cast against the backdrop of the mutability, the changeableness of the angels, and the perishability of the entire creation, the heavens and the earth. That's why he continues on in verse 11, and they will all become old as a garment, and as a mantle you will roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed. He describes the magnitude of creation is being rolled up like a scroll or like uh, notes that some ditzy pastor got confused and put them in misorder before. And, but this isn't anything new, beloved. Uh, the prophet Isaiah describes this, Isaiah 34, verse 4. He says, all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. Or, going back again to the end times, when Jesus Christ is the rightful heir to the entire universe, when he takes the title deed of the earth and he begins breaking off the seals of that scroll and the wrath of God is poured out in judgment. In Revelation 6, verse 14, John in his vision saw that the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So in some kind of massive earthquake with rapid continental drift, it gives the appearance of the scroll being, excuse me, of the sky being rolled up like a scroll. You see, back here in Hebrews and even from Isaiah and from John, beloved, things wind down and wear out. Uh, the illustration here in Hebrews, clothes grow old and wear out. A cloak is rolled up and put away. Everything changes, deteriorates, passes away, except the creator. That's why verse 12, he says, but you, but you are the same. You, son, you, oh God, you, Lord, are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Beloved, the years of the sun never come to an end inasmuch as they never began. The sun has no beginning and no end. We have no end. When God created you and me, we are immortal beings now. We will spend eternity either in the bliss and joy of heaven or in the torment of hell. The angels and the demons are eternal beings, but we and all the spirit beings had a beginning. The sun did not. He He's almighty. He's unchangeable. He's eternal. That's why the author later on in chapter 13, verse 8, says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. Yes and forever. That is the point. Beloved, <clears throat> this is the difference between the created and the creator. Between the temporary and the permanent, between the mutable and the immutable, between the perishable and the imperishable. In a word, listen up, it is the difference between becoming and being. God the Son is, was, and always will be. That is his point. And what's interesting, here in verses 11 and 12, the author uses the same kind of Hebrew-Jewish mechanism where he has this center point and then he has these concentric circles going out from that you may remember if you're here when we looked at the first three verses in verses one through three the center point that was there was the relationship of the son to god 
And then he goes out from that, from the middle of verses 1 through 3, out to the beginning of his relation to creation and then his relation to us. Now, it's the same kind of dynamic here, and if you're a techno person, it's called a chiasm. That's a side point there. But the main point here is, what would we expect to be the center message here in verses 11 and 12? I mean, wouldn't it be the immutability, the unchangeableness of God? But no, what's at the center is the statement at the beginning of verse 12. And as a mantle, you will roll them up. When you radiate out from that to the beginning of verse 11, the end of 12, you get these other layers out there. But what's amazing is the centerpiece of verses 11 and 12 is that this earth and the heavens will be rolled up and put away. They're going away. Why would he emphasize that? Because he wants the readers, he wants you and I to realize that the sovereign creator God who sustains all things will put things away so that he will create all things new. There will be a new earth and a new heavens. It's even at the bedrock foundation of the promise that you and I have from God regarding our future resurrection unto eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, Paul says, you may know the words, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, <clears throat> at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall all be changed in Christ. That's the centerpiece of even what the author of Hebrews brings out. Well, the fifth and final word spelling deity for the Son is victory. In verses 13 and 14. This is the seventh and final quote from the Old Testament. And it's interesting, the author finishes the way he began. Back in verse 5, you see the words, to which of the angels has he ever said? And that's how he begins verse 13. And we read the rest. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This describes the victory, the Winner of a battle, a conquering general in a command, in a war, would place his foot on the neck of his enemy. For example, in Joshua, Joshua 10, verse 24, you read these words. It came about when they brought these kings out to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Because Jesus is the victor. And beloved, what the author of Hebrews is, oh my word, <laughs> sorry, that's beautiful, perfect, don't know, stay right where you are, I'm just, I, I, that's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful creation. Um, beloved, the victory, what the author of Hebrews is bringing out is his victory is secure. We know the end of the story. We know the triumph of the son, the picture that the apostle Paul gives, 2 Corinthians 3, of this magnificent triumphal parade of a conquering Roman general that Jesus Christ will lead the victorious parade in the end of time and we are in his lineup behind him that's what he is bringing out the author here and what he the contrast here is whom would God resign the victory resign the authority resign the control of the universe if not angels who and even when we think of angels, what is the highest exalted position of an angel to stand in the presence of God? We can think of Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, and Gabriel said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. There is no higher honor for an angel than to stand in the presence of God. But no angel ever 
was invited to sit at his right hand or his left hand. That is the great contrast. Beloved, it is the unimpeachable testimony of Hebrews chapter 1 that the Son is infinitely superior to the angels. And that takes us to a brief word on angels in verse 14. Uh, In one word, angels are sent from God's throne room to work for the good, to minister, to serve for the good of God's people. That's why it says at the beginning of 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service? Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to have five very brief words. We don't have much time left, but five very brief words on the ministry of angels. If you want more information, I actually did a three-part series on angels when I did a summer series on our What We Teach document. But in very brief, angels minister to believers as messengers, protectors, watchers, and deliverers. Messengers, their very name, the Greek word malach, which is translated angel, the Hebrew word malach, the Greek word angelos, from which we get the English word angel, mean messenger. That is the core of who they are, how they're described. We know that the angels announced his birth. We know that that one angel that I referenced before already announced his resurrection. In Revelation 14, verse 6, also in the end times, the apostle John saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So the core ministry of angels is they are messengers. Secondly, they are protectors. They guard and protect the children of God. Psalm 91 verse 11, the psalmist wrote, he will give his angels charge concerning you. Now, we are probably most used to that verse being applied in the New Testament to Christ. However, the original psalmist, when he wrote that in verse 2, Psalm 91, verse 2, he describes one who trusts in the Lord. And then in verse 11, the psalmist gives a promise from God that to the one who trusts in the Lord, God will give his angels charge concerning you. Or Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus taught and said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, one of these little believers. For I say to you that their angels, plural angels, in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, quick point here. You might have been wondering, is he ever going to address the question about, do, we ha- do I have a guardian angel? And the answer is, no, you don't have a guardian angel. The better answer is, beloved, you have many angels ministering to you, caring for you, watching over you, protecting you. That is the counsel of the word of God. And there are also, besides messengers, protectors, they are watchers from heaven. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9, the apostle Paul writes, God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And then in Chapter 11, verse 10, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Or 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, Paul gives his young protege Timothy the great charge, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias. Beloved, God is watching you and me. The Son is watching you and me. 
the elect angels, the chosen angels, are watching you and me. And if you're here when we went through Ephesians, you know that the church, the body of Christ, the temple that God is building is a cosmic sermon preached to, el- to uh, angels in heaven. Angels are deliverers as well. Angels, beloved, dear brother, dear sister, angels will deliver us in death into the presence of God. Matthew 24, verse 31, <clears throat> in the Olivet Discourse, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, beloved, all these verses describing angels as messengers, protectors, watchers, deliverers, they all describe angels ministering to believers. Angels are ministering servants to man, but only to the redeemed. There is a fifth word that describes the ministry of the angels, and namely that is their ministry to unbelievers as executioners. Beloved, or dear friend, the only ministry of angels to unbelievers recorded in Scripture is a ministry of judgment. Uh, We know that the Son, back in verse 2, here in Hebrews 1, will inherit all things. That means from a humanity standpoint, he will inherit some for salvation and he will inherit many for condemnation. And angels will be dispatched to carry out the judgment of God as God's executioners. For example, Psalm 78, verse 49. He, God, sent upon them Egypt, his burning anger, fury, and indignation, and trouble, a band of destroying angels. Or in Acts chapter 12, verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck Herod, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Dear friend, the reality is angels deliver believers in death into the presence of God in heaven. Angels will deliver unbelievers in death into the wrath of God in hell. Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But, but God, but there is, dear friend, a way of escape. There is a way of pardon. There is a way of salvation. At the end of verse 14 The angels are ministering servants for the sake of those who inherit salvation. The Son is the creator, the sustainer, the inheritor of all things. And we are co-inheritors with the Son. Or as the Apostle Paul tells the church in Rome, we are joint heirs, we are fellow heirs with Christ. Beloved, the Son who is above all, created all, sustains all, will inherit all for his eternal glory and for your eternal joy joins you to him. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, there is the great statement of the one aspect of the unbreakable chain, of the links of the unbreakable chain of God's gracious salvation. Hebrew, excuse me, uh, uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance 
which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Dear friend, everybody receives a ministry of angels. Each of us chooses which ministry we receive. If you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the angels will guide you, protect you, watch over you, and carry you into heaven when you draw your last breath. If you reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, angels will cast you into hell as you draw your last breath. Joshua said, Joshua 24, verse 15, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The story is told of a very wealthy man who with his devoted son shared a great passion for art. The father and son traveled the world together, adding fine paintings to their collection. Van Gogh's, Picasso's, Monet's. The old man was a widower, but his son filled up the void in his life, and this was their common bond. War erupted. The young son enlisted and was sent overseas. Day after day, the father prayed and waited for news. One fall day, the dreaded telegram came, bordered in black. His son had died bravely in combat, trying to evacuate those caught under fire. Distraught and lonely, the grieving father faced the upcoming holidays with anguish and sorrow. One Christmas morning, a knock sounded at the door. The father opened up to find a soldier there carrying a small package. As they talked, the soldier said, your son and I became very close, and he told me all about your joint art collection. I myself am an artist, and I wanted to give you this. The man, the father took the package in his hands. He unwrapped it, and there was a portrait of his son in striking detail. It wasn't a masterpiece, but it became the father's most prized, precious work of art he'd ever seen. As the father gazed at it, he wept. As The young soldier left. The grieving father pushed aside millions of dollars worth of art and hung the portrait of his son in the prized spot over the fireplace. Time went on, and the old man received letter after letter telling him of his son's bravery and selflessness, of how many lives he had saved and how many more he'd touched. And with each passing day, the portrait over the fireplace became more and more precious to the father. The following spring, the man grew ill and he passed away. The art world was full of anticipation, waiting in great eagerness to get their hands on all these magnificent works of art in this collection. A day was set to auction it all off, and according to the man's instruction, the first painting was a painting that wouldn't be on any museum's want list. It was the painting of his son. When the auctioneer asked for an opening bid, the room was silent. Who will open the bidding at $100, the auctioneer cried out. Moments of silence stretched on awkwardly. Finally, someone in the audience said, let's move on to the other pieces. No, replied the auctioneer. We have to sell this one first. Finally, a neighbor of the man said, will you take $50 for it? That's all I have. But I, I knew the boy. I knew the son. I liked him. I'd like to have it. $50, we have $50, shouted the auctioneer. Will anyone go higher? No one did. Going once, going twice, the gavel fell. The piece was sold. Everyone 
breathe a sigh of relief. Thankfully, now they can get to the real auction and get their hands on the masterpieces. But imagine their shock when the auctioneer suddenly declared the auction and sale is over. A loud outcry arose, stunned disbelief. What do you mean it's over? What about all the masterpieces? The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son gets it all. Beloved, dear friend, as God has no greater messenger than his Son, there is no greater message. There is no further message needed than the gospel of the Son. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we are so humbled. Lord Jesus, we are humbled by who you are. Lord, still us in our hearts. We are so often rightly so full of thanksgiving and praise over what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do. Lord, this morning, let us just consider, let us just meditate, let us reflect on who you are. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, by virtue of who you are, that we pray, that we sing. Amen.